Welcome. The following presentation from Answers in CME is part of an educational activity titled, It Takes Two to Tango, exploring the clinical implications of first-line immunotherapy plus chemotherapy combinations in advanced non-small cell lung cancer. To access the full program and supporting materials, please visit the activity URL in the episode description. This activity is supported by an independent medical education grant from Bristol-Myers Squibb and Regeneron Pharmaceuticals Incorporated. Hello, my name is Eric Singe. I'm a thoracic medical oncologist and assistant professor at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. Joining me today is Dr. Charu Agarwal. Dr. Agarwal is the Leslie M. Heisler Associate Professor of Medicine and Associate Director for the Penn Center for Cancer Care Innovation and is also the physician leader for Airways Malignancies Clinical Research. Dr. Agarwal, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to this. Excellent. Well, today we're going to be looking at the use of chemoimmunotherapy regimens for the treatment of our patients with advanced non-small cell lung cancer in the frontline setting. When we think about combining immunotherapy with chemotherapy, this has the potential to enhance the treatment response for our patients. It can address tumor heterogeneity. It can help to recognize and eliminate the tumor cells by the host immune system. It can also reduce the inherent immunosuppressive nature of the tumor microenvironment through several mechanisms that are shown here. Let's review the guidelines that are currently FDA approved for the first-line management of our patients. We have a long list of multiple chemoimmunotherapy regimens and strategies that are approved for our patients with advanced stage non-small cell lung cancer in the first-line setting. I think the common theme is that there's a backbone of platinum-based chemotherapy plus the addition of anti-PD-1 or anti-PD-L1 agents. Next, it's really important to know PDL1 expression. It's imperative to stress that the way to identify PDL1 expression is through IHC testing, which requires tissue. I do want to stress that PDL1 is an imperfect biomarker, but it does help us think about how well a patient's disease may respond to immunotherapy. There's also a couple of regimens here that have the addition of an anti-CTLA4 agent, so that patients would be receiving dual immunotherapy. This is something that we are definitely using in the clinic. It's a standard of care regimen for many patients, as long as patients do not have a contraindication to immunotherapy. Therapy. So, Dr. Agarwal, how have the recent approvals and recommendations for first-line chemoimmunotherapy and advanced non-small cell lung cancer changed your treatment approach for patients? Eric, you've really witnessed a paradigm shift in the way we approach patients. One of the treatment recommendations is, of course, to use either chemoimmunotherapy or immunotherapy in patients who don't have an actionable mutation. We have a lot of approved agents for druplet regimens with dual immunotherapy, triplet regimens with single-agent immunotherapy, and monotherapy approvals as well. We have approvals incorporating anti-angiogenesis agents. Given this broad variety of approvals, I tend to look at patient factors such as physical status, performance status, disease burden, as well as look at tumor characteristics, including pdl one level, presence of mutations or co-mutations. I think looking at histology, pdl one status, and mutational status really inform our practices. We should educate patients on the benefits and risks of each treatment regimen, as well as the rationale and schedule of administration. I definitely agree, Charo. Now that we've discussed the rationale for chemoimmunotherapy and seen what the guidelines say, let's next explore some of the data that led to those recommendations. So as you can see here, these are results from several of the key first-line chemoimmunotherapy trials. Of course, this slide is not meant for cross-trial comparisons, but what you can see here is that in the experimental arms, which included combination chemoimmunotherapy as compared to the control arm of chemotherapy alone, overall survival, PFS, and objective response rates were improved in the experimental arm. 
I wanted to quickly review some emerging data that many of us medical oncologists may not be as familiar with. And this is the concept of adding dual immunotherapy to chemotherapy. So this is the results from the Checkmate 9LA trial, which is for patients with treatment-naive metastatic non-small cell lung cancer. And patients were randomly assigned to dual immunotherapy with Ipinevo and then two cycles of chemotherapy versus chemotherapy alone. Overall survival in all cases strongly favored the experimental arm with dual immunotherapy. Over a quarter of patients on the experimental arm were still alive at three years as compared to about 19% of patients in the chemotherapy alone arm. Median overall survival was 15.8 months in the experimental arm as compared to 11 months in the control arm, which is what you would expect with chemotherapy alone. We now have data from the Poseidon clinical trial, very similar to Checkmate 9LA. However, the immunotherapy regimens included dervalumab with or without tremolimumab in combination with chemotherapy. We found benefit of using this quadruplet chemoimmunotherapy regimens, not just in the non-squamous, non-small cell lung cancer cohort. We did see benefit in squamous histology as well. We know that patients with squamous histology tend to overall perform somewhat inferiorly to the non-squamous group. However, this is a very relevant option in addition to Checkmate 9LA, which is currently FDA approved. Excellent, Charu. Are you more or less inclined to use these agents based on their efficacy data and your comfort with these agents? Absolutely, Eric. Semiplumab is a drug that has recently been approved as monotherapy for patients with PDL1 high non-small cell lung cancer, as well as in combination with chemotherapy. I think the data are very comparable. We have approvals for pembrolizumab. We have approvals for atezolizumab in this space. So I do think that these are nice options to have. Have they necessarily changed my practice? Not in the sense that I don't have a particular patient profile that may benefit from one drug versus the other because I largely think of these as interchangeable. I agree, Charu. I think I tend to lean more towards just my experience with using one immune checkpoint inhibitor over the other. Maybe that's more from an anecdotal perspective, but there's also, you know, longer follow-up trial data for particular immunotherapy agents, which might help to support my current use. Now that we've discussed the efficacy for chemoimmunotherapeutic options, let's review the safety data. It is a bit overwhelming to really appreciate all the adverse events that may potentially occur for our patients. However, one thing that I wanted to highlight here is this concept of potential for increased immunotherapy-related adverse events with dual immunotherapy as compared to single-agent immunotherapy. The Checkmate 227 trial, so that trial looked at dual immunotherapy alone in the first-line setting for pdl one positive metastatic non-small cell lung cancer patients. And what that trial showed was patients that received dual immunotherapy had close to double the occurrence of immunotherapy-related adverse events. So this really highlights how shared decision-making and really personalizing the treatment regimen for our patients is going to be very important. So Char, how do the general themes in this table influence your treatment decisions? Absolutely, Eric. No matter which treatment regimen we select, we are going to be delivering some kind of adverse event. However, the incidence of grade three and four treatment emergent AEs is not that high, and the treatment-related AEs leading to discontinuation is even lesser. When recognized appropriately, we should be able to mitigate the long-term effects of these toxicities. We just have to really rely on our patients to inform us of these toxicities so that we can come in early. Early intervention is really key here. 
Some of the toxicities may be related to chemotherapy, such as neutropenia, febrile neutropenia. For example, when I use high-dose uh, paclitaxel in my regimens for patients with squamous cell lung cancer, I will always come in with growth factor support. However, I may not necessarily use it for my patients when they receive pemetrexid for non-squamous, non-small cell lung cancer. We also want to monitor for immune-related adverse events. Pretty much every organ system can be affected. We follow thyroid levels or TSH at every visit. We monitor for pneumonitis, we monitor for colitis, but I also tell them of rare adverse events such as pancreatitis, hypophysitis, or adrenal insufficiency. So I do think that there are some key AEs that we need to inform patients about. And when recognized early, we can come in and intervene. So patients can really experience multiple immune-related adverse events over the duration of treatment, even after discontinuation of immunotherapy. So if you look at the timeline here, most commonly to occur in the beginning is rash or pruritus followed by diarrhea, then endocrinopathies, arthralgias, pneumonitis, and then you can see an occurrence of less common adverse events such as myocarditis or rare neurological syndromes. So it's really, really important to continue to be vigilant at diagnosing immune-related toxicities. So Charu, another question for you. What key advice would you give to physicians or patients when starting a triplet versus a quadruplet chemoimmunotherapy regimen? There has been a long association that a quadruplet or a dual immunotherapy regimen may actually lead to higher risk of IRAEs. However, we've become savvy in our approaches of adjusting or modulating the doses of immunotherapy. So now with the new Checkmate 9LA regimen, we actually don't quite see the same level of grade 3, 4 IRAEs that we saw with the earlier experience. I would say the key advice would be to inform patients, ask them to report symptoms early, as well as intervene as soon as possible. I also try to stress my patients that I'm offering a more highly aggressive treatment strategy because their disease is more highly aggressive and there's a potential for a higher risk of adverse events to occur. And so it's really important to really obtain informed consent and we'll highlight soon the importance of shared decision making as well. Now that we've covered the safety of chemoimmunotherapy, let's next discuss how to tailor treatment to each patient's individual needs. When I'm thinking about deciding which regimen to choose for my patient, it's really important to understand if we're dealing with a squamous or non-squamous histology so we can best select the chemotherapy agent to partner with our platinum agent and the immunotherapy. Next, it's really important to know pdl one expression through IHC testing, which requires tissue. I do want to stress that pdl one is an imperfect biomarker, but it does help us think about how well a patient's disease may respond to immunotherapy. Of course, we want to exclude the presence of a driver mutation and then think about any contraindications that patients may have to immunotherapy. It's important to work with our multidisciplinary colleagues if patients have, say, baseline autoimmune arthritis or other autoimmune conditions to really get their buy-in before we start a patient on immunotherapy. Patients who harbored STIC11 or KEEP co-mutations have worse outcomes, be it with immunotherapy alone or with chemoimmunotherapy. All these findings lead us to one conclusion that patients with KRAS mutations are quite a heterogeneous group, and potentially we will be using all of these co-mutational factors to guide our first-line treatment approaches. There are lots of other patient-related factors that we evaluate when thinking about a treatment plan. I think the most important is ECOG performance status. I mean, this basically dictates what I'm going to do in clinic. We know that our benefit in patients with poor performance status is relatively low, toxicity is high. So I think risk-benefit ratios have to be analyzed in terms of performance status. I think age and frailty are two slightly different concepts. So I do tend to think about frailty, but 
but I don't tend to really think about age in my treatment decisions. Comorbidity is extremely important. Past medical history, important comorbidities that we need to worry about. And then disease burden. Is this patient going to be okay for three cycles with monotherapy alone? Or do I really come in with a chemotherapy backbone to try and increase that response rate and not make that patient really sick? So I think there are just so many factors that go into our treatment decision plan. And that really boils down to thinking about what patients' goals are. It's very important to also have shared decision-making. I will often ask patients, what are your goals at the first visit? I absolutely agree with you, Charu. The goal here is palliative, not curative intent. And so making sure that patients derive a clinical benefit is extremely important, but also how they tolerate the treatment. Therefore, shared decision-making to me means applying the data that we have just reviewed here, but applying it in the context of a patient's values, their preferences, and their goals in mind. So the resources they have, the lifestyle, the support system that they have, it's very important to really practice shared decision-making and make it personalized. In our final chapter, we'll explore clinical considerations for patients receiving chemoimmunotherapies for advanced non-small cell lung cancer. In our final session, Charu and I want to share some of our practical experiences with managing patients on the various chemoimmunotherapy strategies that we've recommended for first-line treatment. Charu, why don't you start us off with monitoring patients? Absolutely, Eric. We tend to see our patients with each cycle of chemoimmunotherapy or immunotherapy administration. We ask them about any kind of toxicities that may have emerged, but we also perform a complete physical examination so that we're not missing any clinically occult toxicities. Performing lab monitoring is extremely important, not just complete blood count and comprehensive metabolic panel, but also including TSH. Hypothyroidism can be a common manifestation of immunotherapy-related adverse events, but sometimes it can actually start off as hyperthyroidism. Chemotherapy can lead to bone marrow suppression, it can lead to nausea. Do they need uh, growth factor support? Do they need escalation of their nausea medication? Finally, we need to tell our patients what to expect and how to contact us. I will often give patients cards that actually say that they're on immunotherapy. So the treating physician in the emergency room is already aware that they're on immunotherapy. I completely agree. When I'm talking about the potential for immunotherapy-related adverse events to occur, I mentioned that they can range anywhere from minor to life-threatening, and I provide them with individualized patient education sheets to say these are potential side effects to be aware of, but you know your body the best. If anything feels different, alert us and alert us early. So Charu, when we're thinking about how long we want to administer immunotherapy to a patient, what is your typical practice and recommendations? All the clinical trials that led to approvals of immunotherapy capped immunotherapy treatments at two years. However, what we find in practicality is that patients often continue indefinitely. We asked this question in a large real-world database. We found two key findings. Firstly, about only 20% of the patients in the community are actually discontinuing immunotherapy at two years in the absence of progression, toxicity, etc. And secondly, we found no overall survival advantage for patients who continue immunotherapy indefinitely. I agree, Charu. Additionally, we have data that's now showing that with the reintroduction of immunotherapy with a re-challenge, many patients can still obtain a response with regards to disease control. So I would recommend, and I'm leaning towards at this point, two years of immunotherapy for the majority of my patients. Charu, what are the best multidisciplinary practices for treating patients with chemoimmunotherapy combinations? 
I think versus monotherapy, chemoimmunotherapy is slightly more complex and may require management from bone marrow suppression standpoint, coordination of care when it comes to more frequent visits, comprehensive assessments, as well as shared decision-making because they have to be aware not just of immunotherapy side effects, but also chemotherapy side effects. I think, you know, it really is important to think about involving our colleagues from multidisciplinary specialties. I think about talking to my dermatologists, sometimes rheumatologists, pulmonary medicine physicians. So in summary, we've nicely reviewed the rationale for combining chemotherapy and immunotherapy for our patients with advanced stage non-small cell lung cancer in the first line setting and talk through how we personalize that treatment strategy. Well, thank you for joining us and goodbye. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Please visit the activity URL in the episode description to view all program materials, complete the post-test, and get a certificate.